0: Have you had the experience of being deeply bothered by remembrance of your past failures or your past mistakes, or, or is there somebody in your life who, like, always brings them up against you? Charles Spurgeon, you, you probably know, it was a great uh, Victorian-era English Baptist pastor. He himself had this experience. He, he wrote about it like this. It's as if the record of my sin was painted on my eyeballs. I cannot look anywhere without seeing it. And I seem to taste it in my meat and drink. And when I fall asleep, I dream about it. And, and the wrath that has come upon me, and now my transgression, transgression haunts me wherever I go. And when haunted by sin, we, make, we repent, we make, we make restitution, and, and we continue in, in walking with the Lord. But what, what about when we're continually haunted by the memory of our past sin? or somebody brings it up against us, or it comes up against our hearts in the night. This happens to all of us, I think. So I like to drive up north to speak at camp, and we were—years ago, we were driving up north to speak at, at Camp Barakel, and the family was in the van, and, and then the kids were kind of little then. The, the middle boy—the the younger of the four boys, Dan and Wes, were little boys. And, and they were making noise and just doing crazy stuff. And I kept saying, stop making noise and behave and sit still. And they wouldn't. And we stopped at this shell station. Uh, and and we, we go into this shell station. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spank you. And so I spanked them. But it was like kind of a love tap, right? It wasn't, it wasn't anything significant. And, and then on the way out, they laughed at me. So then I thought, OK, I'm going to make this a memorable experience for you now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sort of angry, and I spanked them in, in anger. And then they didn't laugh. They just kind of walked out to the van and got in the van, and I knew that I had sinned against them. And I had sinned against God. And I, I had to ask them to forgive me. And they, they're, they're good boys. They, they so quickly forgave me. But I have to drive by that Shell station every time I go to Camp Barrakel. So, I'm driving up the next time to Camp Baracal, and the boys are in the back, and they're like, hey, there's the station where you beat us after the <laughs> And I'm like, that wasn't the way it was. And then, I, and, and, then, and then after a while, the boys grew up, and then they got married. And one of them lives in Texas, and one of them lives in New Mexico now. And I still have to drive by that Shell station. And that hurts. Our daughter Hope knows that I feel that way about. Every time I drive by the shell station, I remember my past sin, and it hurts. And my daughter Hope And one, one day we were driving up, Dan was still with, uh, with us, and I drove on up past that exit to the next exit. I think it's Twin Branch, where the outlets are. And I went back this way so that I could skip where that shell station was. So when I got to the corner and went, started to go north, Dan goes, "Hey! isn't that Shell station down that way? <laughs> like, yeah, that's where it is. And then a couple years ago, I, Hope and I are driving up to Camp Bear to speak. And, uh, and, I, and she's heard me, you know, mention this. And so we're driving together and we're having a nice day. And we drive by that Shell station and she just quietly looks over and goes, I love you, Dad. And we drove on for a while. And then she says, don't feel bad about beating my brothers half to death at that <laughs> gas station back there. Now, it's kind of cool to use illustrations that don't make you look too awful bad, right? But, like, the truth of it is, you know, there are shameful episodes in all of our past. And we bring them up against ourselves, and others bring them up against us, and the accuser uh, brings them up against us. I want to I give you some, some powerful and maybe a little bit surprising tools. To help you deal with the shame and the guilt of your past sin, these are treasures of my heart. I'm telling you, and they come out of the scriptures, and they come out of my own experience. In Second in Peter, you know this in Second Peter and chapter three and verse 18. It says in Second Peter 3:18, "Grow in grace." Like grace is something, a dynamic in truth, and a, that, of course the word charis means gift from God and, and a special freighted uh, word in the Bible. He, God wants us to, to always be deepening our roots in grace and learning more about grace and experiencing grace on a new level. And that's why he says grow in grace that God gifts people freely because he's good not because they're good. I want you to grow in that. I want you to increase in that. Grow in grace. Now, in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 21, there's a powerful passage there about, about sin. One of the things that it says is it contrasts, you know, the, when, when we're in bondage to sin and then it contrasts when we're free of sin. And it says that when we're in bondage to sin, we do things that we are ashamed of now. And then when we get free of sin, we have life and, and not that... That shame, right? And we all have that experience. That's in Romans 6 and 21. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what fruit were you getting in those things of which you are now ashamed? The, ends of, the end of those things is death, the Bible says. And, you, and you, if you have some experience with sin, you know that's true. It just kills you and the people around you in a kind of a slow, agonizing death. And the guilt and the shame, they strangle you, and they wake you up in the night, and you feel this condemnation. And that's common to every, every believer, the greatest believer. And so how do you take that shame? And how do, you, how do you get free of that shame? And here's the treasure of my heart. Grow in grace, and when you grow in grace, your shame, which is a vice, will turn to humility, which is a virtue. The short version of that same point, if you're a note taker, that's point one. And there are only three happy little points today. Grow in grace and your shame will turn to humility. And when you turn your shame to humility, humility is a virtue. And and, and I had a friend one time tell me, a wise man, he said, if you look for new ways to humble yourself every day, you will continually be growing in grace because he gives his grace to the humble. God doesn't give grace to the proud. They, like, don't need anything. But when I humble myself, God pours gifts on me. He pours gifts on people who humble themselves. One great secret of the Bible is that God is looking for empty people to fill, not for proud people, you know, to promote, but for broken people to heal and for empty people to fill. And so when we grow in grace, then our humility, turn, our shame turns to humility and the vice of shame turns to a virtue of humility and god's grace gets poured into our life it's here's the way i like to look at it have you ever seen a big beautiful sparkling diamond anywhere of course you have so ladies are going matter of fact i have Uh right you ever notice how they sell those in the store They, they they get a black as coal piece of black velvet and then they put that diamond up against that black velvet Think of the diamond as the gifts of God, the grace of God, especially the great grace of God expressed when Jesus died for our sins on Calvary. Think of the grace of God as a diamond, the diamond of God's grace. And think of your past sin and shame as the black velvet behind it that shows how beautiful his grace is. That's the way it's supposed to work. Did you ever listen to the radio and you hear a program that comes out of Chicago called Unshackled? They say it's the longest-running program of any kind in, in history. And, and it's a program that does only one thing. It tells the stories about people whose lives were broken and ruined by sin that God restored, and he set them free. And that's called Unshackled. I've had the privilege of going to the Pacific Garden Mission and preaching. Matter of fact, Heidi, you spoke there with me one time. Do You remember that? Right shortly after Heidi got saved, we went there together. She shared a testimony in a place where, they, where this broadcast comes unshackled. You know, the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest teachers, missionaries in the Bible, wrote a bunch of the Bible, the Apostle Paul had a very dark past, he had a very checkered past, he had a very shameful past, and he was always bringing it up. He was always mentioning it. Now, you think, that's not a good idea. Don't bring up my past, and that's not quite right. That's kind of a dangerous half-truth. It's not don't bring up the past. It's how you bring up the past that matters. How you bring up the past is going to make the difference about whether you're broken by shame or whether you're strengthened, you know, by humility. And you can you can follow the, the life of Paul. And so I want to do that for a minute because Paul's testimony, Paul's story, his conversion story was very significant. And the reason that we know that is in the in the book of Acts. You know, you have a little you have a little uh, Acts and, and Luke are, are are twin books. What's two books? Three is a, and two books are trilogy. Yeah, two together. Amen. Anyway, two and 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 that's what Luke and Acts. And 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 in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the of the young church, it breaks into giving Paul's testimony, the story of his conversion, three times. And every time you read it, there's just more of an extended version of the testimony this is significant god thought it was important to talk about paul's past sin now when you read the epistles of paul you find out that paul thought it was important to talk about his past sin but it's how you talk about it it's how you see your past sin that makes all of the difference. And so I wanna show you here just briefly, and this is a treasure, about Paul's conversion story, how he compared himself with others and how he referred to himself. Two or three little insights that I think are useful. When he was was first referring to himself, when he was referring to himself before his conversion, here's how he referred himself. He compared himself with the Hebrews, with the other Jews, because he was Jewish, and he called himself, do you remember? Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's like of all the righteous, religious Jewish people, I was the righteousest and the most religious of the Jewish people. I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. If you want to break out your Jewishness, I will break out my Jewishness. That's what Paul would say. And so, before he was converted, he compared himself to other Jewish, religious Jewish people, and he considered himself the most religious of the most religious of the Jewish people. Now, then, went, and that's in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, you can make a note of that, where he calls himself Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, later, he didn't compare himself with the, with the Hebrews, with the Jews, but in uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter 15 and verse 9, in that passage about the gospel, if you recall, he compares himself with, he was an apostle, and he compares himself with other apostles. And what does he call himself? He says, well, I'm an apostle, you know, but I'm a, I'm what? I'm i I'm the, come on, come on, you know this. Now work with me here least of the apostles we'll get to the chief thing later yeah he's the least of the apostles so he's like he's saying i was a hebrew of the hebrews and later on he refers to himself well i was an apostle but you know i was the least of the apostles now then in ephesians in chapter 3 and verse 8 he's talking about the saints and he compares himself not with the uh, hebrews or with the apostles but with the other saints which means just other believers in jesus and, and in 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 uh ephesians 3 and verse 8 the first part He says, I was the least of all the saints. Now, in other words, the more he grows, before he's saved, he says, I'm the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Then he says, the least of the apostles. Then as he walks with the Lord, he says, I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of all the saints. And just before Paul dies, he refers to himself again in a comparison. And in this comparison, he's comparing himself with other sinners, when he's mature in the Lord, he's comparing himself with other sinners. And you remember what he calls himself in 1 Timothy. He says, I am the, there it is, I'm the chief of sinners. See what I'm saying? The deeper you get your roots down in God's grace, the more you want to brag on him, <laughs> the less you want to brag on you. The more you get your roots down in God's grace, the freer you are. You don't have to compete or compare. That's the total, that's the total, that's a dead end, Right? You just bring your sin up as the black backdrop against the diamond of God's grace, and you say, I'm the chief of sinners, but God. no, Now, what was it that, what is this thing, though, in this self-evaluation that made it less than an unhealthy introspection, which destroys people? You know, when you're bringing up your sin against yourself all the time, you know I'm I'm evil, I'm wicked, I'm bad, I, I'm deserving of judgment, and, and that's that. What's the difference? The difference is when Paul brought this up, and when God wants us to bring our own sins up, He never wants us to bring our own sins up without referring to His gifts and His grace, the cross. It's just a way of talking about how beautiful it is. It's just a way of talking about how powerful the cross is. You don't bring up the sin, the past sin, and leave it there. That's crushing. You bring up the past sin on the way to the cross. You see what I mean? That's uplifting to your soul, and that's a testimony. And so listen to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. As a matter of fact, turn to that one in your Bible. Please take your Bible and turn or scroll to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is giving a bit of his testimony because what he's saying is, I was one of those who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead, even though I, you know, his, his post-resurrection appearance was unusual, Right? And and he talks about the privileges that God had given to him. And, and and who got who Jesus appeared to, to in verse seven James and then verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born he's referring to himself in a third person, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the Church of God, and here it comes. Watch for the key word here in verse ten, but by the what here it is by the what by the by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so we believed. it's the grace of God. Every time Paul referred to his past, every time he mentioned the grace of God. That's just life-changing right there. The deeper our roots go down, in the fact that God is gifting us our eternal life, gifting us our forgiveness, gifting us our salvation, gifting us with birdsong and good food and godly friends, the deeper our roots go down in that God is a giver, 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 the more our shame turns to humility. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Nobody else is going to tell you stuff like this. It's like, try harder, you know, be good, turn over a new leaf. Oh, you loser. You blew it again, you know. But the grace of God, and so in First Corinthians fifteen, he says, "But by the grace of God." In Ephesians 3, 8, where he called himself the least of all the saints, he says, but it is the grace that's given. And in 1 Timothy and chapter 1, in verse 12 and through 17, where he's at the end of his life, he said, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. He uses two superlatives. The grace, it was all about grace, guys. That's it. And when you know the Lord, you don't shy away from talking about your sin, but you always use it as an excuse to brag on the grace of God. So there's an old man in the parking lot Of the church in a red Ford pickup truck, and he's sitting out on the edge of the parking lot and he won't come in. And week after week, over in Waterford, Michigan, he takes his old red Ford pickup truck and he drives it to the church and he's alone and he sits out on the edge of the parking lot and he just looks. He wants to go in, but he knows he's unworthy of hanging out with those good people at the church. Week after week, they see him out there sitting at the edge of the parking lot, and one day the pastor says, Who's that guy? That's sitting out there at the edge of the parking lot. If you've been to the Old Faith Baptist Church in Waterford, you know that they have a special love for the unlovely and broken. And, and And the pastor says to the guys who the guys who greet in the parking lot are are Harley guys and girls. And so the Harley guys who have really tasted the grace of God, they walk out one day to the red Ford pickup truck and they ask the guy if he'll roll down his window. And he rolls his window down. He looks at him and they go. So, you know, you come here all the time, man, and you sit in the parking lot during the services, but you don't ever come in. Why is that? And he goes, man, you, if I go in there, that roof is going to cave in on me. I'm in such a mess. I've done so many bad things in my life that I can't go in there with those good people. And those Harley guys go, are you kidding me, man? Like, we can match you sin for sin. Get out of your truck and come in the church. They eventually get that guy out of his truck, and he comes in, and he sits under the gospel, and now he, until the day he died, he never missed a Sunday service once he overcame the shame and he got his roots down in the grace. <laughs> okay, that's, that's point number one. That's treasure number one. Can you say it? I'm in the car, on the way home, you should be able to say this. You should be able to say the deeper your roots go down in the grace of God, the more you sh- churn your shame into humility. The second treasure is, is a part of kind of Romans eight twenty eight. you know, all things work together for good. So I'm mowing my lawn one day, many, many years ago, and I'm remembering my past sin. And the more I'm, it's Saturday because that's when the devil accuses a pastor especially because he's trying to mess him over because he's going to preach the next day. He doesn't want him to tell the good news to people. I'm mowing my lawn and remembering my past sin and feeling heaviness in that, you know, like, and kind of the kind of thing, like, how can I go tomorrow and talk about God and, and, then, and then I got to remember that past sin? And, and then I remember this, this passage in Scripture, all things work together for good. And I thought, would my past sin be included in that, all things that work together for good? Well, that was a long time ago. I wasn't 30 years old yet. And I hadn't read too deeply in the Puritans. The Puritans write about this a lot, and they call it the help of our sin. This is what this is going to be surprising. If you want to fight against the condemnation of your past sin, use use humility, right, and and grace. Look at get your roots down the grace of God, and you'll have humility. And the second thing is use your sin, the help of your sin. Now, now I, I'll do this quickly, and someday should the Lord allow. I, I'll go back and I'll go, I'll go really slow through this very same material. But I want you to see the sweep of it right now because this came right out of my own life. When I was about 29 years old and I went into my desk and I started writing, you know, God, you know, I feel bad about the things I did in my past. I don't want to remember them. I don't want to think about them anymore. And what good can they do me? And I started writing. And for years, I've shared this with people. It's just so helpful to me to think back. If you have sin in your past and you've been forgiven, here are six things that happened that are good, that are good. You guys are like we're gonna be here all day long like i'll go really fast six things that will happen that are good when you're when you're forgiven of passing when you when you know you're a forgiven sinner you're better at praise right like you show me somebody who doesn't have their praise on i'll show you somebody that just kind of doesn't get it yet right Get, they need to get their nose rubbed in their sin for a while, and then they need to get to the foot, to the dust at the foot of the cross, and they need to understand how forgiven they are. And then they're going to become a hey, it's church, yeah, it's church. You wake up in the morning, it's Sunday. I'm going to go with the other people, and I'm going to sing that song about God's grace. I remember standing in church one day my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole it's nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul you praise god a forgiven sinner he 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 or she also second grows in humility you have a greater you know you you praise god better you, you're humble because you remember you're not you know when you got saved it wasn't like i decided to, to follow jesus and aspire to be a good person like he was that's hogwash that's that in the bible right it's like i met jesus i realized how broken how lost how guilty how sinful i am he's cleansed me and forgave me in spite of myself i'm gonna follow him wherever he goes and i realized i i remember the pit i was dug from i realized the kind of person that in my sin i am I, that my depravity and my potential for evil so that's good, right? If you're a forgiven sinner, one of the good things is you praise God better. Another good thing is you're, 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 you have deeper humility. Number Third, third thing is you're, you're more patient with others. You know, so you, sometimes you see people just grinding down on other people that are trying to grow, and they're not growing really fast, and I'm like, do you remember you when you were that knucklehead? Like, do you remember you when you were far from God? Do you remember you? Matter of fact, look in the Bible in Titus. I just love this, and Every believer ought to go here every once in a while and think about it again. Book of Titus, am I the only one turning? All right, that's fine. I'll read it to you then. Here, listen to this. This is the way a believer should, you know, refer uh, to himself, should think uh, about himself. Um, In Titus in chapter 3 and verse 4, verse 3, it says, for we ourselves before we were saved for we ourselves were once foolish We were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, and we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, here, listen, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, and not because of works which we have done in in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we should look at our past, and that, that makes us more patient with others, right? Remember how long it took you to get to kindergarten, where you are now with Jesus? You know, it took you a long time. Give people time. God, the Bible says that Jesus even gave Jezebel time to repent. Think about that one for a while. Okay, that's three. Number four, when we are forgiven sinners, this is how our sin works for us. We have a greater hatred for sin than we did before, because we've we have we have scars. We have we have the scars to prove it, right? We don't joke about our sin. We don't we don't we don't look we don't think wistfully about our past sin. We're just like broken, right? And then and then number five, we have a sweeter love for God. My goodness, I wish I had time. I will some other time have time to go to Luke seven and talk about that sinful woman and and how Jesus says, you know, the reason that she. Uh, you Know, kissed me when I came in and washed her, washed my feet with the hair of her head was because she was forgiven much. And because she's forgiven much, she what she loves much. And like the Simon, like that's why you don't love me, you don't think you need forgiveness. But when you get the idea how sinful you are and that I forgave you, you get on your knees and you shed some tears, and you'll get me affection, you'll treat me with affection because your love. Sometimes it's, you know, I was watching this elderly lady sing a solo one day, and she was just so, you know, she's an elderly lady, and she just had the grace of God on her, she's up there singing. And I said to the pastor of the church afterward, that lady there, she really had the grace. She had some, she had some anointing on her, you know. And he, I go, and I'm like, how, how long has she been here? I figured she grew up in the church. He said, oh, that lady's had an awful rough life, man. She just came to know the Lord a few years ago. But she knew the Lord. Sometimes, you know, you got to be careful. You're not just sitting around in church, soaking up religious talk, and you never had an experience of grace and forgiveness and mercy, right? Got to have that. And then uh, you have a sweeter love for God. And finally, you have a greater capacity to glorify God. Let me show you one more. And so that's, that's, that's harness the help of your sin. That's a treasure. Harness the help of your sin. When you think back about your sin, you think of all these good things that help you in that. So get your roots down in grace, harness the help of your sin. Here's another. Take your Bible, look toward the end in Revelation 12, and you have a really beautiful scene here where Satan is finally getting tossed on his head. Well, he's really not actually tossed on his head. He's tossed out of heaven, and he's called, among other things, you know what, right? What's he called? The accuser of the brothers and sisters, right? Accuser of the brethren, it says. This is in Revelation 12. 11 and 12, and in that you have a few, but you have at least one clear secret, if you will, or powerful thing that helps us with our sin, and that is our testimony. Our testimony and so how did the saints that overcame him, how did they overcome him? And they said, well, by the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony, and they're willing to die. You, know, you can't mess with somebody like that. If somebody has, if their, their sins were cleansed by the blood of the lamb, and they have a testimony meaning they really are saved, they get it, and then they're willing to die, you can't touch that person. That, that's a good place to be. I've been there myself. Okay, God, are you killing me? Okay, I, I just want to, you're going to have to strengthen me to die faithful because here we go, but I'm ready to die. I know I met you. I know you cleansed me, and I have a testimony, not that I'm good, but that you're good, and, and, and whatever you put on me, I, if you help me, I'll take it, you know, and someday we hope, we will all, all die. But notice this in, in verse, uh, verse 11, now the salvation and power in, in the kingdom, um, Salvation and and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and that they loved not their lives to death. What is that word of their testimony? So that there's a piece of this that's extremely powerful that when I, I have a testimony against the shame of my past sin, so here's what our, inclina- our natural inclination is. I sinned, I need to hide it, and I need to keep hiding it, and no one can find this out. Well, that's not going to work for you because you're going to get exposed and you're going to get accused. There's a better way. Take the sin to the cross, be forgiven, and make it a part of your testimony. Tell the world. You don't have to be the lurid detail, Just make it a part of your testimony. So I'm at Camp Arickell one day, and I'm up there by the lake. And I'd gone through their little library. They got this little library up in a chapel, and you know it's not often used. I'm up there and I'm looking around. I find a book by V. Raymond Edmond, past president of Wheaton College in the Chicago area, in Wheaton, Illinois. And he had, and I'm reading this book by the lake one afternoon. And I find this powerful story. I want to share it with you. So this missionary, true story. He goes to the mission field, and there on the mission field, he hires a little houseboy to help him, and he hires a man to cook for him and to, and, and to do the, the cutting of the wood and, and the cooking and, and, and the, the big jobs. And the houseboy, he hustles around and helps with other things. And it works out great, except when the missionary goes on an extended uh, visit on a uh, mission, they don't get along very well. So the missionary comes up with an idea, and he says, well, here's what we're going to do from now on. He says... When, when I leave, he says to the houseboy, I want you to stay outside. And he says to the cook, when I leave, I want you to stay inside. He says to the houseboy, you stay outside, I want you to weed the garden. And he says to the cook, and you stay inside, I want you to cut the wood, mop the floor, take care of the house on the inside. I want you to make a meal. And, and every time there's a meal time, I want you to have a meal that you put out for the little houseboy, and he'll just come out on the back steps and he'll eat that meal. Then he says to the houseboy, he goes, now that slingshot is going to get you in trouble. So I want you to take the slingshot while I'm gone this week, and I want you to put it away in the bottom of your drawer. And I don't want you to get it out. And then he says, do you guys understand what's up? And they did, and he left. And that went great. You know, day after day, the little house boy went out, and he weeded the garden, and he fed the missionary's pet duck. This missionary had a duck he loved, and he wanted it taken care of. So the little boy fed the missionary's pet duck, and he weeded the garden. And, or the, the, the house boy. And the, and, and, and the cook, he cooked, and he cut the wood, and he mopped the floor, and gave the meals on time. Then one day the boy's out and he's weeding the garden and he he realizes there's pebbles in the garden and the pebbles need to be thrown out of the garden. So he starts to throw the pebbles out of the garden. And then he thinks there's a more efficient way to do this. And he goes inside and he gets his slingshot. And he comes back out and he starts shooting the pebbles out of the garden with a slingshot and it is much more efficient. And after a while, you know how boys are, he got distracted. And so he started shooting the slingshot. He started doing target practice against the tree But what he didn't realize is the missionary's duck went behind the tree, and the duck looked out and he killed the missionary's duck with a slingshot. So he looked around, nobody was nobody saw it, so he he went over in the garden, he dug a big hole, and he buried the duck in the garden. And then when it was lunchtime, he went over for lunch and there was no lunch. So he knocked on the door and the cook came to the door and he thought he kind of had a smile on his face. And the boy said, Where's my lunch? And the cook says, well, I'm a little behind today. Why don't you come in and do some dishes and maybe stack some firewood for me and I'll see if I can't get to your lunch. And the boy said, no, that's not my job. That's your job. My job is to stay outside. He goes, oh yeah? What about the duck? And the boy goes, what do you mean? And the guy smiles and goes, you didn't think I saw you kill that duck? You don't think I saw you bury it in the garden? Do you realize what's gonna happen to you when the missionary comes back? You're in serious trouble. Now I think you have some dishes to do. The little guy goes in. He does what he's told. And that's the way it is. Day after day, he's being blackmailed. He's the slave of the cook. Now, finally, the missionary comes back, and the little boy is just crushed and broken with his guilt, you know. And they're sitting there eating, and the missionary can tell there's something wrong. Very wisely, he says to him, come back here with me. Let's talk a little bit. Back into his study, he takes this little boy, and he sits down. And he says, now, when I was gone, did something happen you needed to tell me about? And all of a sudden, the tears came. He goes, yes. I feel so bad. I disobeyed you. I went outside, and I killed your duck. So you, you killed my dog. Yeah. And I buried it. And then they, he was making me do things. And, and I, oh. The missionary had been looking forward to an opportunity to share the gospel with this little boy. But the little boy was never really open to it until now. And in a few minutes, he's on his knees by the bed. And he's just weeping. And he's receiving his forgiveness. Now, he gets up, and he walks out through the kitchen, and when he's walking out through the kitchen, he gets to the door. He starts to open the door, and the cook says to him, hey, come back here. You got some wood to cut, and the boy says, oh, no, I I don't work for you anymore.